Hi, and welcome to today's episode. For those who've been following me for a while, you know I had to take a month hiatus to wrap up my thesis. So thank you so much for sticking by and coming back to visit again. I really appreciate it. Today I'm talking with Dr. Sinbeck. He's an archaeologist and a professor at Aarhus University. As you know, I love talking to scholars, students, academics, amateurs, and so many more. Their passion for the topic really shines. And you might have noticed that not all the topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie. I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. And now I guess we dive into some Scandinavian history, eh? Today I'm talking with Dr. Sinbeck, and I'm very fortunate because I get to listen about Vikings again, which is some of my uh, favorite topics. And I just want to say thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And I guess we can start a little bit. How did you get interested in the Viking Age? How did you get interested in this time period? Well, I guess there are a few typical reasons why people get interested in the Vikings. Some come from reading the sagas, and I think sees Viking Age people as more relatable than many other historical figures. It's not about kings and bishops. This is actually, to a large extent, ordinary people who we can relate to. And then there are the the, uh, the ones who sees them, the, the mighty warriors, and are fascinating with what you might say, almost tribal ancestors. And then finally, there's what interests me, and that's the long-distance interactions. Very often when we try to understand history, we end up with very localized scenarios. What did this king do to that king? But then with the Vikings, we suddenly have happenings that relate to very different worlds. And I think that's what first puzzled me and then started to raise my curiosity. Uh, also because in so many many ways, we um, there's so many things that doesn't fit our expectations in that story. For one thing, if the Vikings were barbarians coming from uh, an underdeveloped world, why did they have so much success? Why did, um, <laughs> why did, were they a problem to societies in Western Europe? And what did it mean uh, if you were from basically an Iron Age society in the north of Europe, why would you invest time and energy in building ships and taking them far away from your fields and your cows? Wouldn't there be enough to care about at home? Those are really fascinating questions, actually. <laughs> I'm sure some people haven't considered that. So I'm happy you'll uh, you'll be able to expand on that a little bit. So we should maybe start sort of at the beginning of where people understand the Viking Age. So can you elaborate a little bit about where we are in history at this point? Well, very often the uh, the, his, the Viking Age is set to begin in the year 793. It's really just a convention, but it's a neat convention. The reason why we start the Viking Age in that year is that that's the first really securely dated Viking raid that takes place in that summer, actually on the 8th of June in 793. In that year, we have multiple records, including the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and uh, letters by the great Alcuin, the scholar from York who was at the court of Charlemagne, that tells us that there was a raid on the monastery of Lindisfarne 
Lindisfarne is an island off the coast of Northumberland, northern England, where there was in the late 8th century uh, a famous monastery of the Venerable uh, St. Cuthbert. St. Cuthbert was, um, was buried there. And what really upset the churchmen and Alcuin in particular was the fact that these raiders who came from the sea, they attacked not just the monastery, but also the grave of St. Cuthbert. That was sacrilege, obviously. But Alcuin's letter has an interesting statement. Never did we expect such an incursion from the sea. And there's a lot of discussion about the exact wording and what he meant. But surely he seems to suggest that this was a big surprise, something that people had not expected. The people who committed the raid, of course, the monks were not quite clear where they were from, but they were definitely pagans. And that almost certainly means that they were Scandinavians. So for centuries, really, we have taken this event to be the official starting date of the Viking Age. And in the years and decades that follows, raids expand and other monasteries uh, off the coast of England, Scotland and Ireland are targeted by raids that, from the description in the chronicles, um, resemble the pattern of Lindisfarne. So in the early Viking Age, that sort of activity coming with a boat unexpected and looting a place is what really defines that something new has happened. Have we found archaeology at Lindisfarne to be able to support some of these writings? There's a fair bit of Norwegian archaeology which sustains the story. If we look at objects that were produced in the British Isles, there is quite a noticeable concentration of those in graves and a few hordes from the early 800s or just before the 800s. It can't be dated more precisely. But surely enough evidence to suggest that around this time, people living in Norway in particular, to some extent also in other parts of Scandinavia, but clearly in particular Norway, which has the close coastal route to the British Isles, get access to something new. So archaeology and and, uh, the uh, written sources have really, they tell pretty much the same story. And now if we look at Lindisfarne, that seems to be our starting off point for many people. But you said you're interested in how it happened. So do we want to go backwards in time a little bit and perhaps discuss what was happening before the Viking Age a little bit? Yes, exactly. The The, the point with Lindisfarne is that uh, to the people who experienced it, it was clearly something that came out of uh, nothing. It clearly came out of something. And for many years, that's been one of the questions that really puzzled me and puzzled, to be honest, a lot of other Viking scholars. What led to that rate well being possible and being something that became a model for a lot of uh, subsequent events. And uh, there's been various schools of thinking about it. To some, the fact that people were able to navigate from Scandinavia to the British Isles suggests that there was a long period of build-up. And um, I think it was the great historian Peter Sawyer who suggested that there had probably been a lot of interaction prior to Lindisfarne. It was just that nobody had written it down. And he suggested that eventually you would find evidence of pre-Viking Age contact, uh, perhaps in Atlantic Scotland in particular. And others have suggested that it was more what I call the Big Bang theory, that something fairly 
suddenly happened that initiated a kind of contact which had not existed before. Now, for many years, there has been some attempts to address this question from archaeology. Obviously, we're not likely to get any more new written sources that would bear on the question, but archaeology could still help us. And it's a very neat little problem for archaeology, in fact. And uh, in the Orkney Islands, for instance, there's been an interesting suggestion that uh, some of the haircombs that are found in graves prior to the Viking Age would be made from reindeer antler. And if so, of course, that would point to trading contacts with Scandinavia. Obviously, reindeer is not native to, to the Orkneys. So that's the kind of evidence that we could hope to find. Another line of thought have said that these raids have to have something to do with the trading towns or emporia that start to appear in the South and North Sea area. Uh, in the century or so leading up to the Viking Age. And at face value, that's a really nice uh, suggestion. It makes a lot of sense. We know both from written sources and from archaeology that from around the late 600s, places like London, Ipswich, Southampton, develops quite large trading communities. They're mentioned in law codes and other uh, sources. Archaeologists have found the traces of these coastal settlements with evidence of long-distance trade and uh, crafts, which are really some of the earliest urban settlements that we have in Northern Europe after the, uh, the demise of the Roman uh, Empire. The only problem has been that for many years, researchers have struggled to make the connection between what's happening in those sites in the lower part of the North Sea area and what might be happening up in Norway. And there's a great survey by James Barrett from Cambridge University uh, at, um, that has discussed this a few years ago. And James Barrett came to the conclusion that you actually couldn't link this urban trade as much as we wanted. You couldn't link it to what took place in Norway because Norway was settled by pretty uh, isolated farming communities at the time. And if obviously they developed long distance seafaring, but not, he believed, in the context of the North Sea Emporia or trading towns. So for many years, this has been uh, a bit of a mystery and a big discussion field in Viking studies. Uh, and for me, that's one reason why I have been strongly engaged in the research on the trading towns. And one thing, one thing I've really wanted to uh, explore, whether we could in some way make that link. So we're looking at Scandinavia and possibly northern Britain and see if there's a mercantilism or some kind of a commercial trading system at that point. Yes. Or rather, we know there was a trading system. The Viking Age towns, uh, some of them are famous. Many people will know about Birka in Sweden or Heatherby, which is uh, which was in the Viking Age at the border between Denmark and the Saxons. Now it's in northern Germany. York, of course, is a famous Viking trading town. And all of these places go back to the 700s, possibly not Heatherby. That's a bit debated. But certainly at Birka, there was trade and crafts going on before Lindisfarne. And in another place, the most important of those sites we have in current Denmark, in Ribe, the west coast of Jutland, very near the North Sea coastline, upper river, we can actually trace that story throughout the 8th century. Ribe was uh, a place where there were good connections with the Rhineland in particular. And we can see from already from around 700, so 90 years before Lindisfarne, we must have regular boat contact 
with well, the Netherlands today, uh, in particular the big town at the uh, mouth of the Rhine, Dorstadt, and from that further up into the Frankish area. And what we find in Libya is Frankish products like glass beakers, wine vessels, basalt cornstones for some odd reason. Other items which clearly went north, probably to pay for good woolen cloth, uh, possibly skin and furs, and other nice trading objects that the north could offer. So trading context, there certainly was. The question is how they link up. People do not just trade all over, and it clearly takes time to establish those contexts. For example, although Ribe is actually very There's a very easy sailing from Ribe to southern England. You could easily sail to London or you could sail to East Anglia and to the the centers there. But we see very little uh, evidence of that happening for a long time. So the question when people have, have asked about how that related to the Viking Age has also always been, could we link it? Or was it, in fact, just separate stories starting up in different corners of the world, really? So now if we're talking about Rib in in particular, you have a project that you were part of. And that project, has that answered any questions yet? Or are we still discovering things? We'll be discovering things for quite a long while. But I've been fortunate to excavate in Rib since 2014. We've explored the early cemetery there with graves from the early Viking Age and before the Viking Age. But the big breakthrough happened in uh, 2016 when we managed to persuade big Danish foundation, the Carlsberg Foundation, to fund uh, a large-scale excavation in the center of that trading town. This is something we've we've known that this was one of the big uh, opportunities of Viking archaeology for a long time because Ribe has more than two meters of stratified cultural deposits from the Viking Age and before that. But the excavations that have taken place, they have been rather small scale because this is a living town, in fact, a very nice historic town. And there's been very few opportunities to dig into it, literally. Um, But we managed to get the funding and we set off on a two-year excavation, which ran from 2017 to 18, which finally gave us what we've been hoping for for a long time, a high standard excavation that enabled us to unravel face by face what has happened. And the nice thing about Liebe as a settlement is that the archaeology there is extraordinarily well preserved in some uh, sense. Whereas in some historic towns, you'll always find a lot of digging for cellars and um, buildings, drains and everything. So sometimes the the, um, the remains are badly disturbed. That's not the case in Ribe. You will find floors from buildings and uh, remains from the streets that are still pretty untouched. It takes a lot of care to excavate them. But with that care, you can sort of peel off those layers of history one after another, almost as easy as you can turn the pages of a medieval manuscript. Not quite as easy, I should say. It, it takes a lot of time. But uh, the extraordinary thing is that we can actually unravel uh, what happens there at an important meeting point for maritime traffic in that period at least decade by decade, sometimes uh, even in finer detail. And in that way, we suddenly get uh, a very important new source for that question, how the maritime expansion that led to uh, Lindisfarne, how that took off. 
So when we look at the archaeology, I mean, people have been excavating for a few hundred years, but it seems as though the technology on how to interpret and what tools to use has changed. So do you mind explaining a little bit some of these technologies or tools that you use? Yes. The progress in archaeology over the last many years has been partly, I think, a conceptual one, understanding what it is we're excavating. When people excavated in Birka 100 years ago, they would scoop up the earth and look for fine objects uh, to take out. And they didn't realize that the real historical questions that uh, these objects could answer would demand that you knew in what order they were deposited and where they were deposited and how old that was. And that's essentially been the questions we've been trying to solve since. Today, we have a lot of technical aids in that process. And that's, of course, something that expands all the time. In the Rive excavation that we conducted, we used, for example, 3D laser scanner for the first time in large-scale Scandinavian excavation, which means that we've got a complete, instead of coming back with sort of single points that's measured in on a plan, this is where we found it. We've got every surface that we peeled off uh, recorded in 3D dimensions. And if ever we get a question like, oh, this object that came up over here, how did that relate specifically to that other object? We can actually go back and check. And that's been enormously important in trying to get the details right and to solve a lot of what would otherwise just be open-ended questions. But we also have new methods for understanding the objects that we find. And one of those methods actually lead us back to those uh, reindeer combs that we discussed for the Orkney finds. Now, one of the things that is great about Bebe is that we find craftsmen's, craftspeople's workshops there. And apart from the fact that this is an extraordinary way to to look into an early medieval community, uh, sometimes when you excavate, you can you can sense the room that you would have been standing in. Here's the door. Here's here are the walls, and you can see how the litter on the floor gradually makes a pattern. But apart from that, it's a fantastic way of relating the place to the wider world. Because craft people, for one thing, one thing that's very good about them is they're quite messy. They produce a lot of debris for us to find. And because they produce things in some quantity, they need supplies. They can't just work on whatever is available. And we've traced glass bead makers workshops with glass coming from the Frankish world. And in some cases, you can see from technical analysis that it's actually old Roman glass from the first century that's been recycled five, six, seven years, a hundred years later. But another set of workshops that's been extremely enlightened are the comb makers. And comb makers perhaps sound like a strange profession today, but it was actually one of the most important uh, urban crafts of the Viking Age. We even have um, a few small stories in the written sources that relate to comb makers. The comb was, the hair comb, was one of the few really neat personal objects that many people would afford to have. I think in terms of status, it would be like the iPhone of the Viking Age. That was sort of the thing that showed that you were, you were a respectable person not a bum on the street, but somebody who had was in firm control of things. Also, because what the hair comb means is not just that your hair looks nice, but it's actually, it's a hygienic article. Uh, it's how you remove hair lice. 
And a thing more, which I think few people think about in the Viking Age, to comb yourself or, or to use a comb, you wouldn't have a mirror. So how do you do that? Well, chances are that you would be doing, as we know, late in the Middle Ages, that you would people would comb each other also as a social thing. Let me comb your hair and I'll tell you my story while we do so. So I think it, having a nice comb was also important because it was an artifact that was used in the context of, of personal interaction. Now, but in the comb making workshops that we find, there's lots of debris. But of course, the comb makers rarely left us anything that was still useful to him. So lots of it is very difficult to make out. We can't even make out exactly what material was used. From a finished comb, we, we sometimes can't tell even if this was a comb made of antler or a comb made of bone. But a few years ago, while I was teaching at the University of York, one of my colleagues there, the, um, the bioarchologist Matthew Collins, came up with a new technique that was that eventually enabled us to make a new breakthrough on that very uh, subject. Now, Matthew and his teams are working on ancient proteins. And proteins, of course, uh, are preserved in lots of materials. But one material where protein preserves is bone. And the standard bone protein is collagen. So any archaeological bone material is likely to preserve that collagen. And they realized that using current technology, it's actually possible to measure the uh, exact protein makeup of collagen, which varies ever so slightly from one animal species to another. So they developed a technique called SUMS, Sioux Archaeology by Mass Spectrometry, which enabled them to take a splint of bone and to tell me tell us what animal did that come from. It doesn't work for all species, but for a lot of species it it does. And I still remember the time that the, the occasion when talking to Matthew and he told me, ah, but they had just uh, realized that it was possible for them with great precision to separate red deer from reindeer. And you can imagine that that was the cue for somebody who was interested in comb making. So a few years ago, I initiated a study. It's not based on the material from the current excavation, but it's based on the study of materials from a site very near to it uh, that was already excavated. And I did that together with two great colleagues, Stephen Ashby, who's at the University of York, and Ashley Kotu, who's uh, now gone on to even better things, but was then also a colleague at York, where we tried to look into those materials and see who provided or what was uh, the comb maker and the labor provided with. Now, the technique had actually already been, been tested for another study of the Orkney combs. And that study had showed that what had been believed in the Orkney to be reindeer antler was not, in fact, reindeer antler. It was reindeer antler. So there was no pre-Viking Age contact shown there. We were back to square one. But what happened in Riebe was that we actually did find that a reindeer antler had been used. It had been used extensively in the early Viking Age, but we could even find it in context going back a generation before the Viking Age. Now, that was pretty much the missing evidence, so the missing link in the chain that we've been looking for. That enabled us to see a commodity from Norway coming down to that trading place a few decades before we see the rage in the, the British Isles. If you think about it, it's curious, really, why a comb maker in Riebe would be using a raw material that was sourced from 
many hundreds of kilometers away up in the uh, Norwegian mountainside. But there's uh, an interesting uh, reason for that, actually. In the Middle Ages, we have quite some evidence that comb makers were always stuck for good material. The point is that red deer antlers are difficult to come by. Red deer tend to live in quite wooded areas and they drop their antlers in unpredictable places. So in the Middle Ages and uh, even in modern times, it's been our special skill to seek out the antlers in the wild. But uh, reindeer are different. Reindeer, of course, live in the high altitudes, in the open mountain range. And at the very time when they typically shed their antlers, that's uh, in the early summer when the, the mosquitoes come out. And the reindeer tend to go out into the ice patches of the mountains to avoid the mosquitoes. And this is where they typically drop their antlers. So if you're suddenly in a situation where somebody needs a lot of antlers, people in Norway would know, hang on a second, we know where. <laughs> they could have gone to the higher altitude uh, mountain areas and literally pick up money lying around, quantities of antler that was shed which nobody could do in a forest anywhere near Rebe. So there was a very good reason why you would source that kind of material. And actually what we learned from our study, we also studied Finnish combs from many contexts. And it turned out that when you get into the Viking age, between a third or half of all the Viking combs are made from red deer antlers. So this is actually a really big industry. This is not just the occasional sailor who brings an odd commodity. This was how comb makers got their material in the early towns. And it's something that started before the Viking Age. Now, that economy is a very nice thing. But if you think about it, it supposes not just that somebody occasionally sails south from Norway. It means that somebody has planned their year cycle to include trips to the high altitude zone, collecting that material and taking it down, knowing what to do with it. And that to me shows that the maritime interactions have very much become ingrained in that society. And to me, that was a sort of mental breakthrough because I, suddenly we had a model that could explain why you would invest so much in ships, boat building, and this, acquiring the skills to navigate beyond your home fjord to a distant place. You could do that aiming for a trading place where you would be fairly safe that you could have a safe landing, be well accepted. It would not be a terribly dangerous thing to do. And you could gain things from that journey, which would probably give you enormous prestige when you came back. And again, all of this happened before the Viking Age. Very recently, actually, just last year, some of our Norwegian colleagues have, have, have even added to that story with another really clever arco-science argument. They investigated some of the whetstones and homes that we find also in Rebe. And they were able to show that along with the red deer or with the reindeer antler, what also comes south is whetstone materials. Norway has some great outcrops of schist that is excellent for uh, sharpening a knife. Denmark hasn't. So it's an obvious thing again to bring. And we can see that traffic also starts there. So whereas 10 years ago, we were struggling to connect the early Viking raids with what was going on in terms of towns and trade, that connection is in place now. And I think that it's um, today we can see that as the prequel to 
Lindisfarne and to the start of the Viking Age, if Lindisfarne is the start of the Viking Age. So I guess then the next question would be, if they had the intention to do commercial exchanges or maybe set up a market, how did it, you know, quote unquote, go wrong? <laughs> and how did it become a raid, if you will? Well, that's a very good, very interesting question. And um, for now, I think it's one that we can mainly speculate about. One thing that I, I think we can safely say is that the kind of contacts that people had in the Viking Age were not like we have today where we travel, well, at least until this strange year, uh, people traveled all over the world and um, had often seen, one individual had often seen many different countries. Even though the Viking Age was becoming a more connected world uh, and one in which long distance contact meant something real to people's well, daily life and annual cycle, like going to the high mountains for reindeer antler or going to the stone quarry to get out uh, whetstone material. It was still probably a situation where going away on a big expedition was something that you would do a few times in your lifetime. But what people did do was talking, and there must have been a lot of exchange of information. And I imagine that when people from Norway started to go south to places like Rebe, what they would meet there would definitely be people coming from other sites like Dorstad. And a sailor who came from Dorstad would be very likely to have also been in an English port. And suddenly there would be a chain of information that meant that perhaps somebody out in Western Norway could say, do you know what? We've heard that there be islands out there. When they sail north, there's a coastline stretching up. It can't be far out. And I would love to think that that's the kind of stories that encourage people to explore uh, other routes than what they know, knew. It's also possible that it happened more by chance that when people set out to cross the North Sea, perhaps initially just aiming for a site, uh, a known site, say going to Rebe, that they accidentally turned west and discovered the sailing route there. We know that happened later when uh, people from Iceland discovered the route to Greenland. That was first observed by a boat party that had drifted and come off course. And later then that information was used to deliberately sail there. Whether the people who came to Lindisfarne intended to go for raid or for training, I don't think we can ever know. The next thing that we would be looking for and that I would certainly love to find would be evidence of trading going back before the Viking Age. Where would we expect to find that? Well, we might expect to find it in uh, some of the Scottish or English or Irish monasteries, or we might expect to find it in uh, a town like York. But so far, it has not turned up. Uh, and for that reason, I think that so far, the best we can say is that they were deliberately aiming for places like Lindisfarne. In another monastery, Withorn, in the RSC area, uh, we can see that there was, uh, in the early Viking Age, a period of quite close contacts. Viking or Scandinavian travellers left some evidence of their presence there, a few shirts, sewn vessels and some comb fragments. But we haven't found that in Lindisfarne. But who knows whether, besides being a, a sacred place, it was also uh, a social gathering point. We don't know still to what extent the islands would have functioned as uh, a beach site and a, perhaps a beach market. 
it would be a question for future archaeology in northern England to, to discover the beach market, which must have been there. Because we do know that there were some other markets elsewhere in Britain that were set up later. So they did end up setting up these markets later? Well, people have been looking for it. And of course, it's um, it's difficult to say when is something a beach market. But we know, I think, to some extent, the situation in Ireland is uh, better known because some of the, the chronicles tells us quite a bit about where the, the Vikings land and where they uh, settle. And eventually, of course, the Vikings set up in what becomes the early Irish towns, because these are the kind of locations that invite, well, on one side, maritime traffic and on another side, uh, trade with the inland. Whether or not there were similar things in, say, in the coast of Northumbria, we don't know yet. It might be that we are to, we should rather seek along the rivers a bit inland. Like, for instance, Ribe is located a few kilometers inland from the tidal coast. But we might still not know everything about that prequel. But at least for now, we can understand much better what kind of interactions it would be sitting in. So the Vikings went west, but they also went east. So do we have information on trading markets out east? We do. And in one sense, actually today, that's a clearer story. In the Baltic Sea area, we know a handful of early trading points, which exactly mirrors that slow rising interaction throughout the 8th century. In particular, from the uh, something like the 840s, we can see a lot of beach landing sites operating with markets and, and crafts in Sweden and Denmark on the north coast of Germany. And even in what is now northwest Russia, where the famous site of Staria Ladoga is established somewhere around 750 with a strong uh, Scandinavian presence and strong affiliations with that network of early trading towns, which is, I guess, the shadow image of the maritime expansion and the, the pickup of the Viking ship. And we've talked a little bit, I guess, about how it expanded, but what were some of the factors involved in them being able to expand? So you've mentioned the ship and their need or their want to expand, but what were some of the changes that were happening around that time for them? Well, that's another question I think we can't answer definitively today, but we can definitely say something about the stakes and some, something about the factors. Um, people in Scandinavia, of course, had been using boats for centuries and millennia even. Back in the Bronze Age, they were uh, boating around the coast with uh, metals. Even in the Neolithic, we have, we've seen how flint from the best outcrops were transported for hundreds of kilometers. So it's not as if people were not moving around by sea. And when we get into the Iron Age, we can also see how fairly big rowing vessels are in use. But what seems still to be a thing related to the beginning of the Viking Age is the sailing ship, the use of the sail to, um, to propel the vessel. And that's really quite a threshold. Either you do it and you do it all over or you don't. It takes a lot of technique to learn to navigate a sailing ship, a sailing vessel safely. Any sailor can tell you that. You can't just jump aboard a boat and then start starting out. Well, you can, but you need, uh, you need a lot of practice in sheltered water before you would start out on a journey on open sea, uh, expecting to return. <laughs> 
And it also takes a lot of resources for a large boat. It's many square meters of woven wool cloth needed. And it also takes quite a different boat building technique. It needs not have started out as one sort of big event. I'm very sure that there was a long period of learning. The sail, for one thing, was already in operation, of course, in the Frankish area. Uh, it's not likely to be something that people in, say, Norway or Sweden just invented on their own. And it might have been that it was used for some purpose for a long time. We've got some carvings on the island of Gotland that stylistically set to probably be from the 7th century, which appear to show sailing vessels. But this might be in a context of small boats. It might be in a context of, well, sports, really, competition. And uh, it might be what you did on a very, on a sunny day with good wind. It's quite different to use that uh, to take a party of warriors across the North Sea. And I still think that all the evidence points to this being a new thing, which happens in the late 800s. So why would it happen at that point? Well, the best guess that I can come up with is that it actually is related to those trading places. Because uh, if you had gone back to before 700, there wouldn't have been in the North Sea area really any places like those trading towns to head for. So if you filled, let's imagine that you had a boat, could fill a cargo, where would you take it? You need to go back with something different than what you set out with. And you need to make sure that this can be accomplished within the sailing season. A single boat doesn't make any sense. A boat without a destination doesn't make any sense. But when First in the Frankish area, then uh, about, uh, very quickly uh, also in, in southern England, and even already by 700 in the southern part of Denmark, places like Ribe grew up where clearly people convened from far distant areas. There was something to go for. And I believe that that is when it started to make sense to come from Western Norway and invest in this technology, which would take you and crew and a sizable cargo south. So my answer would be that it is the trading expeditions which enable this to happen. And once the technology was in place and once also the knowledge of how to use ships was in place, that technology could then be used for something different, which Scandinavians at that time were also very good at, which was warfare. It's not as if I'm trying to pretend that this was a very peaceful trading society. We have all the evidence that we could wish for that being a warrior was part of being a free adult male, and perhaps in some cases a free adult female, as some of the new evidence suggests. This was a very martial society. And the moment when they had sailing ships available, it's obvious that they would also try to use that for warfare. I think uh, there are there are a few places um, that are, well, the maritime equivalent of sandpits, uh, places where you can expand from very sheltered conditions and grow your skills. And Norway is very much that. There is along much of the western coast of Norway, there is this famous row of islands which shelters uh, the main coast from the, the direct Atlantic wave systems. And there are the big fjords, which are very sheltered waters. So uh, you can go from a situation where you can 
play with boats, very sheltered waters, to a situation where you brave it and take them out onto the sea lane on the sheltered, uh, behind the sheltered islands, and then take the big leap out if you are a group of daredevils and say, we'll take them beyond, we'll take them to the open sea. We can do that. And I think that sort of opportunity that well, would have appealed a lot to humans of any age. But you can see how in the context of a rural, early medieval society of, well, a bunch of cowboys, really, uh, mentality revolving around warfare, being able to fend for yourself and protect your home village um, and being able to give your opponents a good beating, how that would have appealed. Now we can do something that's braver and more awesome than anyone else we know of. And we can come back with, with proof that we did it in terms of strange and wonderful objects that came from the big world. So we've talked about sort of the beginnings, but we know because of texts and archaeology, probably, that the Vikings expanded. How does that all connect with the trading centers? Well, we can see through the Viking Age how those maritime connections, or maritime abilities, takes Scandinavians into a lot of novel territory, both geographically and also socially. Um, and basically leads to, well, it leads to a lot of uh, raids and warfare it leads to settlements, sometimes in areas that's already settled, like uh, the Danelaw area of northern England or the Normandy colony uh, in France. But it also, of course, takes them to places that very few people, if anyone, had been to before. And from Lindisfarne and onwards, we can follow how that exploration, really exploration of the capacity of the sailing vessels, is the unifying feature of the Viking Age. Of course, in uh, already in the in the ninth century, it leads to people establishing farming communities in the Faroe Islands. A little later, still in the ninth century, people are off to Iceland, which may or may not have seen the odd Irish monk uh, visiting, but certainly had no sustained population before. And Iceland gets settled not just by the odd boating party, but really by thousands of people. And from Iceland, follows on to the settlement in Greenland in the late 10th century. And even, please, for a brief spell around the year 1000, to uh, the explorations of the coast of uh, North America in Newfoundland. So the story that uh, Lindisfarne is part of, the story about linking up with new places overseas, sometimes in peaceful ways and sometimes in not so peaceful ways, is also the story that eventually leads to the explorations and discoveries, which crowns the Viking Age, if you will, with the discovery and the settlements in the North Atlantic. So I think that especially the fact that we can link these separate phenomena, the explorations out on the open sea uh, into unknown lands, the raids on unsuspecting coasts and the trading activities is what has really come up very neatly off the archaeology uh, in the last decade and uh, the contributions that's been made by the archaeological sciences in that period. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so in my questionnaire, I like to ask a fun fact, and you actually have one to share with me and with everybody who's listening. So do you mind sharing this fun fact with us? 
Well, yeah, the first time I was ever on a Viking Age excavation was when the town Kaupang in Norway was excavated in 2001. Uh, and I think I was, I was one of only very few Danish participants there. And I guess that Kaupang really also was the place where I, my curiosity was really raised to this because we would excavate soil, we would take it to the sieve, and out of the sieve would come these amazing things, uh, pottery from the Rhineland that you would not, you would never have found in a, a village even a few kilometers away. It was really something that had to do with the shipping. No, but uh, while I was there, at one point, they needed to have the big meeting of the austere board of the excavation project, and they sent out all the Norwegian students who were uh, taking part, they were sent home to make room for the board to spend a few days at the excavation. But they couldn't send me away because you know, I would have to travel all the way back to Denmark. So I stayed there and I was still only a student. And um, I remember coming out in the morning and there were all these people there, you know, all these great gods of Viking studies. And there was my excavation leader looking panicking because he'd forgotten to have somebody who could help to serve the people, bring out the coffee. And so so I was hired on the moment to do all that. And that was actually my introduction to all the great gods uh, of Viking studies. The great Richard Hall who excavated York, uh, the great Elsa Rostal of Denmark who became my, my PhD supervisor later. So in this funny little way, by uh, being in the wrong place, being displaced in the wrong place, that's a very Viking thing to be. That actually led to a lot of things in my career which wouldn't otherwise have happened. That is a very fun fact and I don't think uh, many people know that about you. So thank you for sharing. And I like to ask, if you had a time machine, what would be the thing that you would like to either the place you want to be, the person you want to meet or the event you want to see? Well, I really can't escape those trading towns. I think that's where I would go. I am. Of course, I would like to go to Ribe, but I think that if I had one seat in that machine, I would probably go to Birka. Uh, and I would be there when the missionary Anskar was there in the 820s. And when he got the, the king who resided in Birka to call to summon an assembly to decide on what to do with these priests. Uh, and in that process, well, played out all the rituals and rites to do with both, well, legal and, and political assembly in this strange hub of interactions between people from people from Russia, people from the Frankish era, people from Scandinavia. That's one thing that I would really have loved to, to witness. I feel like you would know so much more about the culture just being in that one event. You, it seems like there's so many layers to that. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I want to officially say thank you. I mean, this has been incredibly interesting. And it a lot of people don't consider sort of the Viking Age towns and how that all worked and the merchant centers and the trading centers. So this is a whole other way to learn about the Viking Age. So thank you for sharing this information. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you for inviting me. Great fun, Rosie. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Dr. Sinbeck. That was really informative. And it's such a different take on how to look at the Viking Age. The book recommendations I'm giving today actually both edited by Dr. Sinbeck. So Silver Economies, Monetization in Society in Scandinavia, AD 800-1100 by James Graham Campbell, Soren Sinbeck, and Gareth Williams, as well as 
Silver, Butter, Cloth, Monetary and Social Economies in the Viking Age by Jane Kershaw and Soren Sinbeck. You can get me on social media at Histrie, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I'd love to see you there. Also, it would really help if you could rate this podcast on your podcasting platform. Apparently, it helps people find me, so I appreciate all your efforts. I'd like to thank my husband, Jamie, and our brood of kids, our family, our friends, the incredible teachers I've had along the way. Without them, I would definitely not be adventuring through history. Un grand merci.